I think it was telegraphed a few different times that I would speak tonight about some of the hindrances or difficulties in practice. So that's what I'll be speaking about. I wanted to begin with a little prologue since someone asked about insight this morning. So I thought that I would share a, an insight you're probably having that's been expressed beautifully by the great meditation teacher Bhante Gunaratna. Somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. <laughs> Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way and you never noticed. So in a more serious flavor of, a, of the same basic insight or teaching, just bringing back in the metaphor of light, I share a passage from Francois Fenelon, or some French-speaking person might get that better than I do. Uh, Francois lived in 1651 to 1715. As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings, like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things, and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear but we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter, and we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. So after a few days of practice, you have uh, probably some greater idea of the, um, what, these, what these passages are speaking about. And you can see why the Buddha described the path of practice, the path of awakening, as uh, going against the stream because what we are swimming against, you could say, is the stream of an incredible force of conditioning. That conditioning of continually looking elsewhere for our sense of well-being and being, as Mark mentioned last night, being in contention with reality as it is. This metaphor of stream is used a lot in the teachings against the stream, the stream of conditioning, but also the invitation is to enter the stream, to enter the stream of the Dharma. That the, the invitation is once you enter that stream, once you begin to make a shift from the gravitational field or the gravitational pull of your normal preoccupations, your normal fixations with what's next and what you're becoming, et cetera, et cetera, 
toward the gravitational field of the Dharma, which is really the gravitational field of wakefulness, awareness. And rather than putting your trust in the, in the endless quicksand of, of changing experience, rather putting our trust in awareness, once we enter that stream, it is said that it is inevitable that the stream will eventually make its way to the, to the great ocean of awakening. The Buddha said in various different ways, if it, this was not possible to do, I would not ask you to do this. And he reminds us again and again that, uh, that we aren't just stuck with our predicament, that, we, that this is something that we can do. It reminds us that we are trainable. We are, we are, our minds are very malleable. This, in fact, you can sense that every moment when you're present, right now, there is this sense, even sitting in this room, of amazing potential. Nothing is anyway, nothing is anything right now before we add our take on it. Just notice what it's like before we add our take. Before we add any, our view, our opinion, whether we add liking or disliking, comparing, evaluating, judging, whatever it is, before that happens, notice that there is an open field here. And depending on what we drop into this field, what seed we plant, this will determine what, what our stream of consciousness becomes. As Mark said last night, the second half of what he said, he said, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. This present condition is the result of those creative moments that the seeds were planted and what you experience as your mind stream is the fruit of what seeds have been planted. And this moment, if you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. What seed do we plant in this moment? Now think about the different options of what seed could be planted. What do you want to practice right now? What would you like your future present moments to look like? A, it's a reasonable thing to do to reflect on what, it, what is that uh, our intention. And that every moment literally is, is a, uh, a field of creative possibility. As we have been saying, the, uh, what the Buddha recommended is that you take refuge in this light of awareness, and this capacity to be awake. And Mark very beautifully pointed to this uncreated, this ever-available, ever-present capacity of wakefulness as all the equipment that we need, really. Everything that we need is, this, uh, is within this capacity of being aware. But clearly, in spite of perhaps an appreciation for what it's like in those simple moments of, of being aware. Let's even check it out right now. What happens when we're aware? In the simple moment of awareness, just knowing what's happening right now. If you don't look back and you don't look ahead, and you're just here, are you suffering? when you don't consult your memory. 
Are you, is your mind filled with greed when you're mindful? Is it filled with hatred when you're just being mindful? Are you building a story about yourself in that moment of mindfulness? So we see that this, this quality that we have is very precious, this quality of, of presence, of, of mindful attention. But it has gotten clearly blinded by what the Buddha called the three poisons. We can see that these moments don't last very long. They've gotten, uh, they're, they're not so frequent. So this wakefulness has been blinded or uh, obscured by the three poisons that the Buddha described of, of the mind of greed or tanha, the mind of hatred, is it dosa? Mind of delusion, moha. Greed, hatred, and delusion, ignorance. These are so called the three so-called poisons that when they're present in our consciousness, greed, hatred, ignorance, are this view of reality, this capacity of wakefulness is obscured. And out of those, out of those engines of greed, hatred, and ignorance, whatever actions are born of that, of those different qualities in our mind, whatever actions actually lead us into that, into that world in our mind where something's not quite right, where we're not quite right, something's not right, and the trance begins of the view that I cannot be happy now. Any of you ever have that? I thought I might be, you might be able to relate to this a little bit better now. So as Mark reminded us, this, this wakefulness is so natural to us. It is, it is you could say, uh, primary. And in that it's primary, it takes no effort to be aware. It takes no strain because it's so natural to us. But what does take effort, and why we practice, is the effort to remember. Because we have gotten so, our mind has gotten so weak, it's so infrequent, it's so fluctuating that we appreciate this, this mind that is free, that, was, that momentary experience that we have when we're simply mindful. It's become something that uh, we don't notice so often. So our attention has gotten weak. Our mind has gotten weak. Our vitality, a lot of us feel that our vitality has gotten diminished. And of course, a lot of that is the fruit of our stressful lives. But our stressful lives, the engine for our stressful lives, is a lot about greed, hatred, and ignorance. I once went to a series of movies. I had the opportunity to go to a lot of different movies in one period of time. I had a little space. I was on a vacation. And my wife and I went to one movie after another. And by the end of the series of movies, I realized that all of them could have the same title, Greed, Hatred, and Delusion. <laughs> and literally fed from beginningless time this, the, the message of of go somewhere else, become someone else, 
Get rid of what you don't like. Hold on to what you do like. I, I imagined at one point creating a, a different kind of retreat. You know you've come on retreat here. And the, the form of the retreat, although it's quite challenging to somehow metabolize this shift in our life and our form here, we're, we come, we're asked to be quiet. We're asked to practice letting go. We're practicing simplicity, practicing noble silence. We're practicing being satisfied with, with, with not much, taking what we get. And then I imagine for a moment creating a completely different kind of retreat. Imagine the instructions for the retreat would be think all day, get lost in thought, distract yourself any way you can, feed your wanting mind, satisfy every desire, hold on tight, control your mind, control your experience. What does it sound like? Sounds like life. It's no accident that we come to retreat and that, that a bit diminished because of this feudal, um, this feudal um, potential that our, our conventional habits have to bring us a sense of relief and vitality. But the good news is that as that passage that Mark read from the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that that light, that vitality is a split second, a half breath away teacher named Nisargadatta says reality is what makes the present so vital, so different from past and future, which are merely mental. He also says, as we just to bring in that hopeful note, he says when the mind is gathered and kept away from its usual preoccupations, its usual fixations, its Another way of saying that is when you're mindful of them. When the mind is kept away from its, from being, is no longer lost in its preoccupations, it becomes quiet. Notice it for a moment. He goes on to say, if you don't disturb this quiet and you stay in it, you'll discover that it's permeated with a light and a love you've never known, yet you recognize it at once as your own nature. Once you've touched this, had this experience, just even a moment, you'll never be the same person again, he says. He says the unruly mind will break that vision and obliterate that peace. Um, uh, so I forgot the rest of it. But he says just keep practicing. Keep practicing until your life becomes, till your attachments begin to loosen. And life becomes, as he calls it, supremely concentrated in the present moment. Remembering that the beginning of our path is here. The path itself is here. The end of the path is here. It's all about here. So we talk about awareness, this, this, this natural state, this wonderful quality of knowing that's there whether we like it or not. There's an expression of that knowing that we actually practice here. The expression of that knowing is what we call sati or mindfulness. 
Mindfulness is a quality, is an expression of awareness that knows what it is that's happening, that, that not only registers it, which awareness registers everything, but actually comprehends in real time, this is pain, this is sadness, this is a thought, this is a sound, this is, this is heartache, this is joy, this is terror, this is whatever it might be. This quality of sati is simply the bare attention and comprehension of what it is that's happening. And it's not just a, a glancing, it's not just a glancing quality. Mindfulness, this, this word called sati, often mixed with sati, sati sampajanya, which means mindfulness with clear comprehension. Also, it's mixed with, often used with the words sati and panya. Panya is wisdom. That inherent in that quality of awareness, of knowing, is discernment, is intelligence, is responsiveness, that our mind, although it's quite open, it is also has a, within it the capacity for what could be called a keen observing power. So it's not just a lightweight thing. It's something that when, when it is gathered, when it is collected and sustained, becomes very laser-like, has the capacity to move our attention from a very superficial observation of things to really discovering the, what's cooking here, to literally see through the whole uh, illusion, kind of like a matrix experience, seeing through the whole illusion of our bodies, seeing through the illusion of what we call our mind, what we call ourselves. We can, with our own observing power, can do this. So as you pay attention, one of the ways that we develop this capacity is that simple um, connecting that we've been saying, gathering. It's two qualities that we have in our mind that you want to bring again and again and again. I call them the, uh, this is, I don't know why I'm telling you this right now. I call this, this capacity, this expression of awareness, I call this the love muscle. Because whatever I really connect with, whoever I really connect with, if I look at any of you, if I talk to any of you, and I really stay connected to you, I really listen to you, I'm really there with you. So there's two qualities that I've brought to bear on, on that experience. I, the quality of connecting and the quality of sustaining. It's called vitaka vichara. You can write them down if you have them. When these two qualities come to bear, it evokes a kind of a kind of love of what's being seen. So when it comes to a person, there's a kind of affection. When it comes to experience, also, that the very thing that we could have been completely averse to, disturbed by, when we actually turn toward it and let it in, allow it, accept it, that very experience becomes it causes a kind of alchemy. It becomes the cause of, of love, of openness, of interest, of curiosity, all these qualities that actually gladden our heart. And it could be even the most difficult experience. But this is the invitation, the, exper the experiment of practice, to begin to trust that within us is this quality that can turn anything into love. 
So this quality of sati or mindfulness has three, often described as having three qualities. It has this quality of a face-to-face, which we've been using the word over the course of the retreat, direct. It's not just glancing at a distance, oh yeah, that's, that's a sound, or that's, a, that's sadness. It's face-to-face. It's bringing it into full view, letting it come, receiving it in full view, face-to-face. The second quality that's often described is the quality of non-superficiality. So it's not at a distance. We're actually letting ourselves, I think, in the instructions, I may, you may have heard this, maybe not, but I said, sink into the breath, stick to it. It's this quality of sinking in. Often the image that's used is the, of a, a fork dropping into a soft piece of broccoli or potato or something like that. It goes right in. So the quality of face-to-face, of non-superficiality, and third, the quality of the capacity to sustain, that you stay with whatever you're noticing within reason. Stay with it, and I'll explain a little bit in a moment what I mean by within reason. You stay with it to see what its nature is, what its behavior is. So we're not so interested in the course of this kind of practice, of mindfulness practice. We're not just interested in what, what's happening. That's a, certainly that's the beginning of unplugging from, from being absorbed, lost, to noticing this is, the, this is really the, the difference between being, um, being just carried along, bound, and, the diff- and, and being free, is waking up and seeing what's there. But what really loosens our, our heart, what really softens us in the long run, what really changes our view of reality, is not just seeing what's there, but noticing what's happening. Notice, not noticing what's happening, notice what happens to whatever we're observing. So you notice a pain. We've talked about it a lot. When you feel it, at, the, at first it seems like this thing that has attacked your knee or your back or whatever it is. And it seems quite monolithic, but when you come a little closer to it, you actually see that it has a quality. It has stabbing or burning. Today we gave the instructions on physical sensation. You see stabbing, burning, and you feel stabbing, let's say. But you see immediately, if you really sustain, if you sustain awareness of that, that stabbing gives way to burning, gives way to itching or tingling or searing. Then you may notice a mental reaction, but you begin to see something that's true about everything. And no matter what you pay attention to, you start to see that the fact of, um, of change is, is apparent. If we really pay attention to the, the light of the solstice right now, if we pay attention now each day at the same time on the clock, you'll notice that it's getting darker. It's in the more general sense, if we pay attention, we see, we know this already, but in real time, in our practice, we begin to become quite familiar with the natural behavior of every experience. Doesn't sound particularly sexy, does it? But it is in the seeing of change that, that liberating insight begins. Because what is it that really binds us. The Buddha said there were basically three 
kinds of misperceptions. It says one is we take that which is impermanent and changing, we take it to be permanent. I'll, I won't say the other ones for right now. I'll just give you a sneak preview. <laughs> the second misperception, we take that which is actually unreliable and unsatisfactory to be satisfactory, to be reliable. Believe that something will give us lasting satisfaction. And third, we take that which is actually arising and passing that is clearly, a, you could say, a selfless process. It's just happening. Thoughts, feelings, sensations, etc. And we take it to be me and mine. We take it to be self. We take that which is not self to be self. So those three misperceptions get us really bound up. We get all bound up in protecting and defending and creating this thing called me that's actually not a thing at all, but a process of continual changing mental, physical phenomena rolling on. Fundamental misperception. So it, very, it really helps if you're paying attention to anything to keep these three qualities in mind, face-to-face, non-superficial, and sustained, so that you can see for yourself what's actually true. So when the Buddha did this, he did this after, when he paid attention in the way that I'm describing, he did so with a lot of gusto. And he, he did this with a lot of gusto because he had realized something in the course of his, of his search, of his holy longing. He had realized that putting his trust in the world of the pleasures of the senses, what he called sensual indulgence, putting his trust in that, putting his faith in that, was, um, was uh, misplaced, that it would, was actually um, it was, a it was a mistaken perception. And he began to reflect that everything that he held near and dear, everything that he looked for to make himself feel better, actually uh, left a wake of dissatisfaction. And, and not only that, but it, it, gener it left in its wake more and more um, wanting to fill that hole that got, got, uh, that got left. So he tried that side of the equation, that extreme of, of sensual indulgence, and then he tried the extreme of what he called self-mortification or, or ascetic practices where he starved himself, where he denied himself food and, and comfort, assuming that that would be one way to find happiness, is to be able to transcend the body and, and somehow then be, be liberated, not have to deal with it, a kind of nihilistic, you know, get out of here kind of attitude. He saw that didn't work. And it was at that time he discovered what, as, what he later described as a middle way, a way between these extremes. The reminder that we need a certain measure of comfort and, and ease and delight and gladness and pleasure. But if we make it, if we make the various fleeting forms of this our devotion, we end up really stuck. And th that middle way between the other extreme of, of denial, all that, that does is turn us into sick and tired, rigid fundamentalists. And that's never liberated anyone. 
So at this point, he had tried all the great uh, practices of his day of great concentration and entered into states, beautiful states, where he experienced a sense of unmixed happiness and really delightful, very joyful. But he saw even the great states of meditation, of, of concentration, were fleeting in the long run. They passed a little slower as he paid attention to their behavior. But he saw that they were all subsumed under the umbrella of what he called dukkha, that Mark referred to as the first noble truth. That these are, these are unreliable, dukkha in its form of being unreliable. And yet he still had not quenched that thirst to find something reliable, a well-being that didn't depend so much on, these, on, the, on the quick and the fast and the fleeting, something that was more enduring, even more enduring than a, a, a state of great meditation that could be sustained for hours on end. Even that was still, if one caught, got caught up in that, that would still keep the mind bound in, um, in a misperception of reality, because even that would change. So it's at this point that he sat down, no one around to be able to teach him, and he used those qualities of mindfulness. He brought that mindfulness to bear on his mind and body. So you can imagine yourself as the Buddha under the Bodhi tree. All of us have been doing that uh, with our yoga practice, bringing our mind in our body, and trying to sustain that attention over and over again. And you probably feel a little bit of the fruits of that, even at this point. Mind, senses are probably a little bit more open, a little bit more fresh, maybe a little weary at the end of the day. In fact, I forgot to congratulate you for making through the second day. <laughs> it's sometimes even, as our friend uh, Mary Grace Orr says, it's sometimes swampy. And sometimes the second is even swampier than the first. And it's not easy. But you probably have had some glimpses of a, of a little bit of relief and ease, at least in moments. But the same thing that has happened to you since you arrived happened to the Buddha. In his one-pointed commitment to being here, to really finding in this very life, in this very time, freedom, not waiting for some other lifetime, not waiting for some other experience, but right here in this uh, vital present, he stopped and he gathered his attention using his body in the same way that you have, connecting and sustaining and he was visited by all the aches and pains. He was visited by the three qualities that Anna spoke of this morning, feeling tone that accompanies every single experience. He experienced moments that were pleasant, moments that were unpleasant, and moments that were neither pleasant or unpleasant. And they arise with every single sense experience, all the, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body, the thoughts. Every one of them comes with a little valence, a little feeling tone. An interesting thing we often don't notice when our attention is more superficial. We don't notice that this little world of feeling is the, is the launching pad for the whole realm of uh, our internal drama, the whole realm of dissatisfaction, the whole realm of suffering, 
and even the whole realm of freedom if we notice it. But often it goes unnoticed. And each one of those little pleasant moments is often quickly followed by what? Wanting, liking, a lot of liking. And liking is usually followed by wanting. Wanting is usually followed by becoming, wanting to get more of whatever that is. It's called bhava. Bhava is, is then followed by this, this grand drama, this great pursuit of happiness. And in fact, but in fact, nothing's really happened. It's all in our mind. We haven't left the present moment, but our mind takes off. And pretty soon, the, our perception of the present moment is that something's not right here. So it all starts with that little feeling tone. And of course, the unpleasant feeling tone is quickly followed by, it's just a law, but don't believe it. Just look for yourself. It's followed by not wanting or by dislike, if it's unpleasant. Dislike is followed by, by um, aversion. Aversion is followed by, uh, I can't stand this. Got to get away from it. And pretty soon, we're in the strategizing world of, of getting away from what's uncomfortable. Now, it seems so, um, what do you do about that, since it's so fast and fleeting? The good news is we can begin to notice this whole process if we're paying attention. What happens when we hear a sound that's associated with a pleasant feeling or see a sight? What happens when we, when we feel a pleasant or an unpleasant sensation? If we stay connected, we begin to see the law of change. We begin to see what happens when, we, when greed enters the mind, see what happens when hatred enters the mind. See what happens when we create a drama out of it, create a me story about it. So generally, when it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, we check out. We don't notice. We go into confusion or delusion. And it's often when in confusion or delusion that we enter into the, the imaginary world of ourselves, not the real direct experience of ourselves. So the Buddha, like you, was faced with the same thing, but he brought an amazing determination because he tried everything else except paying attention to the body and to the mind, to the feelings, to the world of, of sense experiences. Making that shift from indulging in them, getting lost in them, thinking about them all the time, to noticing, oh, this is a sensation, this is a sound, this is a feeling. And an interesting thing happened. The more he paid attention to things, and you'll notice this over the week, and Mark alluded to this a lot last night, the more you pay attention to, to whatever you pay attention to, the very connection that you make with whatever it is you're paying attention to is like a, it's like a flint. It begins to brighten the mind. It begins to brighten that light. And that includes even the things that are very difficult to bear, even the things and the states of mind that, are, um, that normally, when they go unnoticed, torment us. When they are brought into the light of awareness, they become the cause of wakefulness, of brightness, and of course, all the other byproducts of healing, insight, compassion. And it's the uniquely human experience 
that our difficulties become uh, the cause of our healing. But we have to experiment. We have to really see, moment by moment, what happens when you invite in that very thing that you would normally, uh, that would normally either spawn a whole story or that you just, um, that you would want to get away from quickly. So he was faced, along with the realm of, with the range of physical sensations that all of us have, he was faced with what have been described as all the forces, the armies of Mara. Mara is the personification of all the, the so-called kilesa, or the torments of the mind, the mind states that come that, that um, convince us, that, that remind us that there's something wrong with us, something wrong with this moment, that something has to change. And the, the five kilesa, or torments, that are most common that enter into our mind, the same ones that entered the mind of the Buddha, are the so-called five hindrances that disrupt the, the natural functioning of awareness, that cloud our perception when, when they go unnoticed, and they lead us into a feeling that, um, that there is no way to find any relief right here. And they lead us to feeling really crummy about our experience and often not so good about anyone else's experience either or anything else. These five hindrances are the quality of, of uh, is the, are the desire for, for sense objects, a desire for sense pleasure. When you're sitting quietly, completely at ease, and you hear, or you, in your memory or in your nose, you smell something pleasant. It reminds you of, it, has, it comes with a little association, childhood, the smell of, let's see, what, what did you like in your childhood? What did you like the smell of? What was that? Say that a little louder. Lunch. Lunch. <laughs> Thank you. So the smell of lunch. <laughs> Good one, Anna. It is something relevant to the retreat. It's like the number one source of entertainment. So the, the pleasant smell arises, touches the nostril, consciousness of smelling arises. Not so much mindfulness at that moment, but you, you could, if I asked you what your experience was, yeah, you say you were smelling, but there may not have been that face-to-face, -face, that directness that said, oh, this is this is the smell of the food, or this is smelling. This is the difference between mindfulness and just thinking about something. It's consciously comprehending what it is that's happening. So this smell arises, very pleasant, and you notice, you, you didn't really notice so much, but very quickly that pleasant smell says, mmm, that is so delicious. I really like that smell. And it reminds me of my childhood. And, you know, I'd like to really go back to where I lived as a child, really walk in the forest and cook my meals over the fire, whatever, whatever it is that you do. And before you know it, you're, you're in a little world of desire. You're in a world of, of, of the wanting mind.
and what has happened to the present moment? The present moment has just gotten, uh, nothing's really happened. We haven't really left it, but we have, we've gone into our imagination. We've left it with our consciousness. And then when we come back, filled with this cloud of, of desire, it doesn't seem so great here. Seems like I can't be happy until I make that trip to the mid-America or wherever it is that you're going. Or you come to that point in the sitting. This is where the flip side of aversion comes in. You start to feel a little discomfort. But you know that you've sat for about 20 minutes, someone today said, that 20-minute point. At that point, they're done. It's over. So at that point, there is a little bit of discomfort, a little restlessness, a little agitation. The mind says, I don't like this. But in order to deal with that feeling of discomfort, the mind generates a desire. And what is that desire? course, relevant to what we're actually doing is the desire for the bell to ring. And as soon as we're caught in that desire for the bell to ring, what was started as just a slightly uncomfortable experience turns into a torture test, how we're going to make it to the bell ringing. And the bell, that wonderful world of the bell ringing, becomes the secret to happiness. But happiness, as we all know, that the teachings remind us that nothing can actually make us happier than we are fundamentally that in that moment of wakefulness. But our mind tricks us into believing our well-being depends on that bell ringing. This is the trance of the wanting mind. But why is it called a torment? It's called a torment because it puts our mind and body into a state of suspended happiness. Just hanging there waiting, hoping that the bell will ring, unable to feel free. And how, how else do we do this in our life? Any of you ever wait for the weekend? How many of you waited for the retreat to begin? What was it like in that period of waiting? Just, you, can, you don't have to say it out loud. This state of wanting, the state of waiting, the state of expecting, state of hoping, all of these forms of desire that, when recognized, display themselves as just states of mind, no problem at all when they're noticed, when they're recognized. This is what wanting is like. This is what waiting is like the very state when it's felt with mindful attention. We see that it has the story of you know, getting to the end of the sitting and this and that, but the feeling of it, we, once we connect with the felt sense of it in our body, we see that it's turbulent, agitated, it's tight, it's suspended, it's holding. But once it meets the light of attention, that very feeling that tormented you, when you didn't notice it, that very feeling reveals itself as a weather front, as a changing condition, as just a state of mind that is, um, that is not 
permanent, not substantial, not personal. It just came and it went. When it goes unnoticed, it becomes all about me. For some reason, I'm thinking about the, the reverse side of this, which is the aversion that I know, especially the second day of a retreat, it is uh, aversion central. Everyone, everything can become the cause of, of, everyone's the cause of your misery. And we find ourselves really, I, don't, I hope I'm not uh, just projecting this on you, find ourselves averse to everything, everyone, finding everything that's wrong. And sometimes, especially in close quarters like this, there's someone who may be breathing a little bit louder than, uh, than at least breathing loudly enough that we can hear them. And often, of course, we would rather hear our own or feel our own breath than hear someone else's, but sometimes it happens. And sometimes people have, maybe have sinus issues or whatever it is. And sometimes people are doing intentional breathing, and even though we're not doing so much doing that with mindful attention, we're just basically noticing the flow of the breath. But nevertheless, we hear that sound of someone breathing. And that sound produces this aversion. And then it becomes not just hatred and aversion. It becomes all about me. What does that person's breathing have to do with me? It all becomes, it's, that person is disturbing my practice. And our mind gets fixated on that person, what we need to do to get them to stop, how they should not do that, we become just absolutely incredulous about how anybody could be at the retreat doing this or that. Now, you can transpose anything that you got triggered with. And in that process, we completely miss that it was not at all that person's breathing that, that made us unhappy. But it was this state of aversion that went unnoticed and the, consequential, the, the consequence of the state of aversion going unnoticed, which is, can be felt and noticed as a changing condition, once we get our attention off of that person and feel the state, when we don't feel that state, we lose a sense of presence. And that's what gets us really mad, is we lose our home base. And then when we lose our home base and we're fixated on the bell or the person our sense of well-being is completely in this sea of insecurity. How am I ever going to find relief? And, and it becomes completely dependent on that person stopping breathing or the bell ringing. I wonder if this speaks to your own experience. Do you ever have this desire or aversion? But these are two of the main torments of the mind. The good news is these can be felt, they can be noticed. And when they're noticed, they become, as Trungpa Rinpoche called them, the manure of Bodhi. Now we come by this, um, this mistaken perception about the reliability of pleasure or getting rid of, of displeasure. We come by it honestly because from the time we're born, we are literally encouraged to seek pleasure and avoid pain. And we do this out of love for ourselves and self-caring. Unfortunately, this habit of wanting, of not wanting, wanting and not wanting, has wound us into a knot 
of confusion and made us really unable to find that, that balance that is able to meet the joys when they come and the pleasures without grasping, able to meet the difficulties without so much ill will. So Hafiz invites us to really look at this process of how we get caught up in the fleeting pleasures of the bell ringing or the, the, the lunch or whatever it is that we get carried away by. In his poem, I'm just going to read a little portion of his poem called Cast All Your Votes for Dancing. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. Hold that image. <laughs> Just trying to make a point here. Sogil Rinpoche really speaks of the, the cultural conditioning that gives rise to this mistaken perception about the reliability of pleasures or the avoidance of, of displeasure. He says, sometimes that I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning. That endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern, samsara, this modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated. It assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall in the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. As one Tibetan master said, mesmerized by the sheer variety of perceptions, beings wander endlessly astray in samsara's vicious cycle, obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, ambitions which promise happiness but lead only to misery. We are like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. A bit hard-hitting. But again, a hopeful, hopeful note from Sri Nisargadatta. As long as we believe that we need things to make us happy or get rid of things to make us happy, we shall also believe that in our absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure is a distraction, for it merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is expressed negatively as, there's nothing wrong with me. I have nothing to worry about. 
After all, the ultimate purpose of all sadhana or practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? The experience of being empty, which is really the same as being mindful. Uncluttered by memories and expectations. It is like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, for adventure. Your true home is in emptiness, openness. Emptiness of all content. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So we become tricked into, by our own minds. The good news, we can become mindful of the state of wanting, the state of aversion. And he alluded to a common mental state, the third mental state that I won't go into too much, but it is one that we all know very well. It's one that is born naturally from having a mistaken perception that something can make us happier than we are. That, that mistaken perception that projects our sense of well-being into an imagined future that never arrives. Because the future doesn't exist and time is always now. But because our mind gets so tethered to a sense of well-being that uh, comes not now but in the future, this is our habit again, we end up in a state of anxiety and worry and agitation. Any of you ever worry? <laughs> what has been the fruit of all of that worry? What has been the fruit of all that worry? When more worry. As Hafiz puts it in his poem called Find a Better Job, he says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? <laughs> How do we find a better job? We actually, rather than, well, of course it's wonderful if we can stop worrying, but worry arises. It's another one of those weather fronts that arises, those mental states that when unnoticed, torments us drives us into that world of believing that there's something wrong with this moment, something wrong with us. But when recognized as worry, we notice the story of it. And we also, as a way of grounding, we feel that the impact of worry in our body. The same with aversion and hatred and all that we've, uh, that's filled with the story of what's wrong with everyone and what's wrong with me. We feel that in our body. When we feel it in our body, worry, desire, anger, it becomes, the, it becomes that manure. It, becomes the, it anchors us to the present moment, becomes a doorway to feeling the pain of such a state, it becomes, which ends up being the doorway to compassion, mercy. If we stay in the state of worry, we, we are, we're lost. So this is why we continually invite you to rather than put your trust in these different states, to wake up to them and put your trust in awareness. Once you're aware of them, then they become quite workable. You, you can say to yourself inwardly, as Ajahn Sumedha, one of our teachers, says, worry is like this, fully comprehending it. Agitation is like this. Of course, what comes with it is often a physical state of restlessness and agitation. We feel that. What's restlessness like? We connect with it. We sustain our awareness as much as possible. Of course, sometimes these states are too hard to be with. And 
That's why I said within reason we want to sustain our attention. Sometimes it, it's necessary, as Anna invited us to do, to direct our attention momentarily for a time to something neutral or pleasant, to rest our attention somewhere else, to help us develop some composure. But it's all in the service of learning how not to get rid of these states, but to accommodate them, to realize that they're changing conditions, to realize that they're not me, that they're not mine, they're not self. They're just um, waves. Last one, very briefly, maybe the most tormenting when it goes unnoticed, uh, is the state of, of doubt. It's that those views that Mark referred to it as the, as the mind that's, that is skeptical and aver it's, a, it's a kind of aversion, really, skeptical and contracted and saying, I can't do this. If it's about ourselves, I can't do this. Everybody else is getting enlightened except me. Everybody else looks like a rock. I can't do it. And it's these conclusions, these views, that when they land and get watered with inattention, they proliferate into a, a, a complete dissipation of our practice, can't really do it. Nothing's really happened except a mental state. So the potential of being able to see the story of doubt, but then to notice, oh, this is doubt. Feel the effect in our body. Let it be the, the compassion food. Let yourself feel it. But once you notice it, once you feel it, you will inevitably notice it as a changing state of mind. It's not as personal as you thought it was. Not as believable, even. But getting to know the mental state of doubt is, is very useful. Normally, we're just caught, lost in the story. So try to feel it. So with all of these, we simply try to be mindful, these mental states. I'll say them again, the, the ones I talked about tonight, desire, aversion, restlessness, and agitation. We talked earlier today about sloth and torpor. Sometimes it's just about being tired. Sometimes it's about an imbalance between tranquility and energy. When our energy is low, our tranquility is a little higher, we sleep. When energy is a little high, uh, tranquility is a little low, we often feel restless. So we can begin to see for ourselves, what do I need right now? If I'm really, if I'm really slothful, dull. I need to arouse some energy. So we walk a little faster. We do the things that Anna said this morning. We stand. We um, splash water on our face. We pull on our ears. We open our eyes real wide. If you're living uh, someplace with a well, you can sit on the edge of a well. <laughs> Just something that wakes you up. But most importantly, even with that, is we're mindful of dullness. We try to be mindful. We sometimes even use this, uh, this tool of mental labeling. We know dullness, dullness, sleepiness, sleepiness. And we see how long it lasts. Sometimes just the effort to notice it sometimes wakes us up. Sometimes it has nothing to do with really being tired. It, sometimes it's just a habit. So we notice desire, aversion, restlessness, sloth and torpor, and, um, and doubt. We try to meet them. We try to recognize them, we try to accept them, we try to investigate what happens to them, their quality, how we feel them in our body, and we try not to get too identified with them. We just don't cling, don't condemn, just let it, let it do its natural thing. And you'll see that they all liberate themselves. So to end, I just want to 
I want to just give you the 30-second version of what happened to the Buddha as after he faced the forces of Mara. These hindrances came to his mind. As I said, the more he paid attention, the more, the brighter his mind became. Until there came a point, because of the continu continuity of mindfulness, his mind was so bright that it was literally shining in its clarity. That's where that line, luminous is the mind. And it was as his mind became so much more reflective that he was able to see those same hindrances that cloud the mind when they were noticed had no impact on the mind. The negative voices, the, neg the, the judgments, the, the terrible stuff didn't diminish that luminosity, nor did the pleasant experiences enhance it in any way. It was untouched by whatever visited. The more he paid attention, the, more, the less reactive his mind be became, the less he needed this thing to go away and to have more of this, and the more his mind just fell into what is sometimes called the joy of equanimity, a kind of balance, a kind of openness that feels the full force of everything, but is not, um, not so caught up in it, that allows the arising and passing of things with less stickiness. And this really is the function of mindful attention is to take, literally pull the stickiness, the grasping and aversion and the delusion out of the changing experience that happens every moment. During the yoga, whatever, whatever hindrances are arising, we do it the same thing. We notice, oh, this is, this is comparing, this is evaluating, this is judging, this is liking, this is dislike. It's all the same. And as he rested in that open, balanced state of mind, his mind no longer looking for something that would be permanent. As he rested, in a flash of insight, his mind opened and relaxed. And he realized, whoa, I've been looking for something reliable my whole lifetime. And it turns out that it's the very nature of my own mind. And he realized the, the light of awareness, the unconditioned, the unborn. So that's the invitation for all of us. So no need to strain or struggle. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. No need to change your posture. May all beings make peace with the hindrances. So thanks for your long enduring attention. Uh, we have about 25 minutes for walking. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.